0: Over the past 240 episodes of this podcast, we've talked a lot about the winding career paths that so many copywriters follow before landing where they are today. It's almost as if copywriter is the destination you can get to from just about anywhere. Teachers, musicians, actors, marketers, nurses, bartenders... Doesn't really matter where you start, you can find your way to copywriting from there. And today's guest for the 241st episode of the Copywriter Club podcast is no different. Daniel Lamb went from musician and bartender to copywriter and agency owner, and he stopped by the podcast to tell us all about it. Along the way, he's tried all kinds of things from building an agency to starting a podcast. We think you're gonna like what he had to share.
1: We've mentioned this once or twice before. And if you're wondering why we keep talking about the Copywriter Think Tank, it might be because we haven't heard from you yet and we want to. The Think Tank is our private mastermind for copywriters and other marketers like today's guest, Daniel Lamb, who want to challenge and support each other, create new revenue streams in their business, receive one-on-two coaching from Kira and myself, and ultimately reach whatever goals you've set for yourself in your business. If you've been looking for a mastermind designed to support you as a copywriter or a marketer and to get more done, visit copywriterthinktank.com to find out more.
0: Now let's jump into our conversation with Daniel and find out how he became a copywriter.
2: It was a very long journey to the point at which I became a copywriter. I initially enrolled in college and decided to be an English major and then promptly dropped out after a couple of semesters to pursue the guitar and to go to music school and um, played music for a few years, kind of trying to figure out where life was going to take me until I kind of realized that um, I was adrift and I needed to do something because I wasn't really quite making it as a musician or anything else for that matter. I was working in restaurants And uh, at some point I decided maybe I should finish my degree. And so I went to college um, at Georgia State. I changed my major like five times. I was going to be a librarian. I was going to be a a counselor. I was going to be a history teacher at one point. Um, But eventually I came back to English, full circle. And I had always had this dream of being in academia. And so I started looking at, okay, If I'm going to do academia, what does that look like? What do I have to do? Um, And so I started researching while I was in undergrad program. Okay. The academic job market is insanely competitive. Copywriting is competitive too, but the academic market is really, I mean, we've all read the articles adjuncting. It's not a great place. So I was pretty much turned off to the idea of sticking with that idea so I looked around and I said, "Well, what could I do? How could I make a living as a writer?" And um, and that's kind of how I found copywriting through um, through some of the stuff in the program there at Georgia State, and then you know just through um, relationships, really, because you know in the program I was learning lots of stuff about multimedia writing and WordPress and like creating you know digital experiences, and so I was really in, engaged with that. I was really kind of turned on to you know this idea of you know, digital could be a a way, you know, to make a living. Um, So at the same time, I was bartending at this pretty popular bar in Atlanta. um, And it was the literary hub of the city at the time. You know, there were all these literary events going on every week and all the same people were hanging out. And so I got to know these people, you know, serving them drinks, hanging out, going to the events when I wasn't working at night. And kind of got plugged into that, started doing readings, you know, talking to people about what their jobs were like. You know, they were copywriters there. There were bartenders. There were people who were writing scripts for screenplays, all kinds of different folks. Um, and so my first breakthrough came through a connection. Um, somebody knew somebody who needed some help at an agency, and I got lucky. And I also prepared, and I networked like hell. But, But, you know, there was some there was some auspicious timing that was lined up for me. So we're
1: going to come back to getting lucky and, and, you know, working hard connecting with other people, but I want to go all the way back to like when you were a musician, tell us a little bit about that. What did you play? What was the band name? Can we still find it on Spotify or, uh, or in Apple music? Tell us a little bit about
2: that. So, yeah. Um, I don't believe that any of the, the stuff I played on ever made it to the, the new internet. Most of the stuff that I was doing was in like pre 2010. Like, so there weren't, you know, streaming, streaming and Spotify weren't really the the thing then, but mostly I was just playing live music. I, I wasn't really doing like the, tour, like the recording sessions kind of stuff. Um, so it was a lot of, it was a lot of bar bands. It was a lot of uh, acoustic guitar music, a lot of, a lot of like local touring and stuff. I did a couple years later, start a metal band um, and they were called Megadactyl. So like a pterodactyl, but way more hardcore. I like it. That's Uh, awesome. So we, we were kind of like a, uh, a mashup of like, I don't know, say like old school Southern heavy metal, like Pantera mixed with, um, I don't know. I don't know what it was mixed with. It was mixed with something, uh, a few things in general. We gave it a shot. We, we almost, did a record and just kind of fizzled out. I made some lifestyle changes at that time. You know, I was like, all right, I need to really focus on my future. So I can't play in this band and live this lifestyle and, you know, do all these things that really aren't contributing to my health. So I took a one eighty, quit music for a while, went back to school, focused on just getting by in the restaurant biz and started writing. And that's really, really when I started to dig into writing was when I kind of put music on pause. But yeah, I mean, I trained in like jazz and I trained in rock and I trained in classical and um, I still play it every day. I love it.
1: So are there ideas for music that you apply to copywriting today? And I know we'll probably come back to this idea, too, because I, you know, some of the things that you're doing in your career right now and with work, you're connecting creativity across the board. But specifically to copywriting and your experience, you know, in jazz, in metal, anything that applies to how you write today?
2: So it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because there are some very pretty direct correlations to the things we do in copywriting to some of the moves you would make in music. For instance, in copywriting, we talk about things like problem agitate solution in, in jazz, for instance, there are movements you can do to add tension to a piece. So there are types of chords that feel like they're really stretching you towards something like you're not quite there or maybe they're anxious or maybe they're kind of scary sounding. And then there are the ones that bring that sort of ah, like a really nice chord that brings you down and makes you feel relaxed. Um, Then there's also things like tempo. Um, So let me let me relate that to copywriting. You know, agitation and musical tension are kind of like the same thing. We write agitation copy to elicit an emotional response, generally, or to to get someone to pay attention to buy in. Musical agitation does the same thing. You know, if somebody's playing something and they hit a note that's wrong, you're like, "Oh, that didn't fit. Why is that?" Because your brain is pushing you toward that place, even though you don't consciously know that. You're not like, "Okay, I'm waiting for him to hit the one." You're just like, "Okay, that sounded weird." <laughs> So like, it would be like in copy, if you agitated, 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 and then said the end, You're like, um, no, that doesn't work.
0: So let's, let's talk about what you were sharing about luck. You know, you said it was lucky. And then you, I think you said, well, I also worked really hard and I had connections and was networking. So can you talk about like what actually helped you take off as a copywriter and how, how you networked? what that actually looked like, what advice you'd give around networking, especially as a bartender, like what worked, what didn't work, because you were you were in the social scene. So let's bartenders see everything. What works and what doesn't work in networking?
2: What works in networking, knowing what the good writers like to drink, remembering their favorite beverage is always a helpful thing. But I think the biggest thing that I took from networking and working in customer service and especially public facing service was that I had to learn how to show up consistently. That's something we talk about a ton in like visibility strategy, but in terms of physically doing that, I had to go to events. I had to go up to people. I had to introduce myself. I had to say hello. I got to get to know them and sort of just like getting outside of my own introverted fear of being, you know, cast aside. That was the biggest breakthrough I think at that point was that I could actually just go up to someone and say, Hey, I've seen you read on stage at Wright club. I think you're awesome. I love what you do. I would love to, you know, grab a coffee sometime. And so just, you know, those kinds of conversations led to relationships. And so somebody has to break the ice and take the first step, make the first move. Um, and I found that for me, I had to do that because nobody knew who I was. So they weren't like, Daniel, I want to know you. So what did that look like then? So as you started connecting
1: with people, you know, were you pitching? Like, you know, I guess specifically what I'm asking is how did you land those first couple of clients and how did network networking with people get you to those first couple of clients?
2: Okay. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, so the first paid writing assignment I ever got was a book review for a pace magazine. Um, they had just gone digital. They'd stopped their print run. And I knew the books editor at the time, he was a regular at the tavern where I worked. And so, you know, he was one of those kind of people who would come in at the same time every day, ask for the same thing, ask you for your name, ask you what you do. And, and, you know, at at some point I had just worked out the courage to say, Hey, is there any chance I could maybe do a writing project for you? And uh, he he gave me a shot and I got to work on a book that was written by um, a local guy. And it was a cool book. It was like a memoir. Um, And uh, I think it paid 40 bucks. I think it took me two or three weeks to actually do it because I had to read the whole book and then write a fairly thorough review of it. So it was hard work. The other like first gig I had was a non-paid writing gig, but I got free theater tickets for uh, reviewing shows in town. So a friend of mine that worked at the coffee shop across the street from the bar um, was hooked up with this um, progressive LGBTQ theater uh, review company or website, whatever, and said, Hey, they need more reviewers. Do you want to, would you be willing to write for some comp tickets? At the time, my wife was in a theater program doing a uh, performance studies at Kennesaw state. And so we needed to get tickets to shows anyway. And it was better if we could not pay for them because we were working and living on very little money. So it was a, a thing of necessity, but I got to, again, meet a lot of people, shake a lot of hands, get stuff for my portfolio, expand my network. Um, and so it was worth it. Um, and so by the time the opportunity came for me to apply for this job at this agency, I had read on stage at five or six different places. i would met a couple hundred people, you know, I had just really put myself out there. Um, so being willing to be visible really was the thing that got me that first shot at a, you know, agency audition.
0: So before we move away from your bartending experience, I have two questions. What was your favorite drink to make? And what is your craziest story from that time as a bartender? Craziest moment?
2: Okay, so I I think that my favorite drink to make would probably be just a standard, really well crafted, old fashioned, nice, balanced, dignified, delicious. That's a that's a sales pitch for somebody's cocktail now. Um, um, and so the craziest thing that ever happened. Oh man, there's just so many So okay, the craziest thing that ever happened was I had to kick a mu- uh, a magician out. He was basically running around the restaurant and panhandling for tricks. He was turning tricks for drinks, literally. Nice. He that's, was that's like and nice. it was charming, right? But people were like looking around at us like, "Hey bartender, there's this crazy man doing tricks." It's kind of weird. We kind of like it, but we're so uncomfortable. So we had to ask this man to leave and he blew up. He lost it. He was screaming at us. He was telling us that he'd spent tens of thousands of dollars with us. Nobody had ever seen the man before. He was a total stranger to us. And, you know, it was a neighborhood place. So we kind of knew our people, you know. And so it was just one of those things where, and then he went online and wrote a bunch of negative reviews and like screenshotted a photo of my, co-bartender and said, this guy's a piece of trash and like totally went for us. I would say that the other craziest time I was there was, um, right before I stopped working there, I was actually already copywriting and I kind of went back to do some management just to make some extra money. And, uh, it was the 2016 presidential election. And that night uh, at a at a liberal Democratic bar in the middle of Atlanta was a very dark time. So I remember standing on the roof of the bar, like looking down at a thousand people, you know, just totally upset, just it was like weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I remember going home that night around twelve or one and there was just people yelling and people crying. And it just it really felt like just like the weirdest, most like decontextual, strange moment. And it, it just really stuck with me.
1: All right. I'm going to shift away from the angry mobs uh, in Atlanta and ask a little bit about uh, how your business uh, evolved from those projects, you know, where you were sort of working comp jobs, you know, the, the beginning of writing. How did it evolve into copywriting and the kind of work that you do today?
2: Yeah, so, so once I was like set up at the agency and working full time, it really started out as content writing and um, SEO writing. So we were doing a lot of technical SEO for a big clothing retailer. And um, so these were things like writing tags for their different page elements, writing descriptions of products, product descriptions, or, you know, like some of that, what you might call content block or filler copy that kind of lives in the footer. So a lot of that, started, started to create a little bit of momentum. You know, we were getting some good results for those clients, you know, the blog, the blog content was doing well for our home services client. You know, they were atomizing it, putting it on Pinterest and getting like a hundred thousand views a month on Pinterest, which was cool. You know, that wasn't my doing. They had a cool social media person, but we were, you know, doing what you're supposed to do, you know, writing a piece of content, turning it into an infographic, putting it all over the place. Um, So it really kind of shifted after a year and a half or so because they had laid off my boss. I didn't have a boss for a while. Um, The other copywriter that I was working with left. And so then it was just me. And I had like no team, no department. (laughs) And they didn't really quite know what to do with me. So they, they decided to merge me with another division So I was working across divisions in this agency and that's when I started working for the um, performance division. And so over there, everything was about measurement and testing. So all the stuff that we talk about in conversion copywriting, you know, like headline testing, creative testing, heat mapping, I kind of got like baptized in that stuff really fast because they were turning a lot of work out in a few verticals. And it was really a fast-paced learning environment from that point on.
0: What did you take from working in that agency in the performance division uh, into your own business You know, when you eventually left and started your own agency? What did you pull directly from that uh, initial agency you worked for?
2: I, pro- I pulled a lot, really. I mean, I would say I pulled more from just like how to run a business and how to not run a business. But in terms of like strategy and tactical stuff, you know, the biggest things that I learned while I was working on these performance campaigns was to really like suspend my disbelief and really look at data because, you know, I could think that I have a really cool concept, a really cool creative idea, but, you know, looking at previous testing, looking at just all of these different data fields to understand what are we really trying to get people to do, and how can we best do that, right? Um, and so, really, just trying to get away from making making up assumptions about why we should write a certain way, and really asking, okay, well, what does the data say? And, you know, that really carries over into voice of customer research now for sales pages and stuff like that, really looking at those types of qualitative data as well as the quantitative stuff.
1: Daniel, I'm wondering, can you give us an example of what you're talking about so that we can make this really real? You know, what, what kinds of things were you looking at in the data in order to learn and, and you know, pivot or, or improve, optimize what you were doing?
2: Yeah. Um, let me think back to the most recent one that I can remember because uh, it's still only a couple years old in my mind we were working for a major credit card company and they were rolling out some landing page tests for their flagship card. Uh, and it was a cashback card. And so one of the things that we did was we, we were able to take all the paid search data from the media team and look at like which ones had the highest conversion rates based on the search intent for those, for those ads. And basically, what we were able to figure out is, okay, do, digging a little deeper and kind of looking at, you know, the stages of user awareness or market sophistication, a la Jean Schwartz, you know, we wanted to serve up different landing page experiences for people at the beginning of the journey versus at the end of the journey. So instead of having one static page to sell this credit card application, you know, we rotated the, the benefit-oriented language around to basically speak to someone who would never heard of the card, maybe someone who was in the middle of the, um, of the journey. And then people who were just like, okay, where do I apply? You know, where's, where do I sign up? You know? And so the way we figured that out was just going deep into spreadsheets and looking at click volume cost per click and just kind of parsing out, okay, these were the most expensive clicks. These were the ones that led to, you know, purchases and so on. And, um, it was pretty messy. I don't have a really clean answer for you, um, but but the results were great. It was the the highest lift that they had seen in the time that they worked with the agency.
0: And since you left that agency gig and started your own agency, how long has it been now? Has it been a couple of years or when did that transition happen?
2: So we made it official um, in April 2020. Right around the time I got home from TCCIRL IRL in San Diego.
0: That's when you launched your new agency.
2: That's when I got furloughed forever and basically laid off. And so I had already started launching my agency before that. You know, I was taking on clients starting back in like 2018. So i had been doing this for a couple of years, but I, I, I went all in on it after, you know, I parted ways with that agency because the thing that I really learned from the agency world was that it's not really set up for a guy like me. You know, the way my brain works, the way my personality is just wasn't a great fit.
0: So how do you, how do you build an agency that does fit and work for someone like you? What, how did you do it differently as you built it?
2: I wish I had a really clean explanation for this, but I will say that like most of us, a lot of it was trial and error. For the first, say five or six months, it was really a struggle. I wasn't exactly sure what I needed or what to ask for from contractors, or just really what to do. I'm like was just you know looking for clients, getting gigs, getting the work done, looking for clients, <laughs> getting gigs, getting the work done. Um, but it really kind of hit a turning point when I decided to start working with an OBM and like systematize everything and really take my internal processes to a place where it wasn't just a bunch of rubber bands and duct tape behind the scenes and actually have like a robust system. That really was the game changing moment where, you know, I was able to step out of just like frantically being, you know, a freelancer slash person who subcontracts slash client services person and have more of a distributed workflow. And so it wasn't just all on me all the time.
1: So Daniel, tell us about the kinds of projects that you love working on today. What does that look like? What are you charging for them? Is it just you? Is it you and your team? What What is, you know, what's the ideal project that lands uh, in your lap today?
2: Yeah. So today the thing that I'm focusing on is actually a little different. It's more of a consulting offer. I'm doing um, SEO VIP days now and, Really what that is, is like research, data-driven analytics strategy, mapping content for people and coming up with a plan that I can hand off to a marketing director and their team so that they can go produce all this content. Um, One of the things that I kind of learned through selling different packages is that ongoing retainer work kind of breeds sort of that um, I can call you anytime, anywhere dependency With clients, Um, I've been learning about boundaries too. So, you know, shout out to boundaries. The other things that, you know, we're packaging up are like websites and funnel copy. Um, I used to do the full implementation. So I would work with subcontractor to, you know, do the design work and implementation work, maybe another writer, depending on the size of the project. Now we've reeled it in. And we're just focusing on the copy and you know, making recommendations. Once the copy's done, hey, you know, if you need someone to help you implement this on your site or you need an integrator, here's some great folks that we've always worked with. Um, I found that for me, like just the the gears of project management were taking up so much of my time that I didn't really get to do the stuff in my business that I actually love to do. And the reason that I started. So I still have an agency model, it's just a little bit less expansive in terms of the services being outside of copy um so yeah funnels websites emails and um and then the vip day and so in terms of pricing things range from about 2500 to up to say you know around 11k 12k for a full site you know large website and so you know we kind of quote things based on you know what the client's asking for and kind of customize it. So it's not, you know, just like productized to the max.
1: Okay, so we've been talking with Daniel for a little while here. Let's jump in and emphasize a couple of the things that he had to share. And I, I want to start with what Daniel was saying about luck and being in the right place at the right time, you know, as he's bartending, he's making all these connections, you know, this creative things were going on. Kira, you know, as I'm thinking about it, I've heard people say there's no such thing as luck or, you know, you've got to be lucky. What do you think about that?
0: I believe in luck. I do think, I do think luck is involved in life at times. Um, and serendipity helps, But I do think some of it we can control by showing up like Daniel talks about. So by joining, I've I've always been a big joiner, which probably isn't surprising. Like I've always joined different clubs and organizations as I moved from city to city. I love to join new communities because that's where luck happens, right? That's where you bump into people and you find new opportunities. And so I think a lot of what Daniel shared in this early part of the interview really showed how he, he did create his own luck by showing up in the right places and not just showing up, but actively seeking out people um, in, intentionally and going up to them and asking them for what he wanted. And so I think that's the big part of it is you can't just stay at home or stay in front of your laptop and expect luck to hit you. Uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't work out that way.
1: Yeah, I, I agree 100% with you on that. Like, luck is, you know, I I, I want to say like, yeah, there are some people who are lucky and some that aren't lucky, but that's not true. Like, luck isn't a character thing. It, it's there are some people who put themselves in situations where connections are able to happen and where things are happening and they happen to be in the right place for you know that thing to land on their plate or for them to make a connection or for them to you know be available. And, you know, if if you're home in your home office, you're not getting out or you're not connecting with people online or you're not putting yourself in communities where that sort of thing can happen, then it's really hard for luck to happen as well. You can still make it happen. uh, And and lucky breaks do happen. But I think the luckiest people are those who put themselves in the situation where luck happens, like what Daniel had done in in his role as a bartender, musician, connecting with all of these people that leads to, you know, not not a great opportunity, but an opportunity, the first opportunity. And I think maybe that's the second part of luck is that, you know, when the opportunity comes, you say, yes, it's not, yes, but I need to make so much money or yes, it's got to be with the right people. You start saying yes to more things and those connections happen and luck just blossoms in your career.
0: Yeah. I think it's also, it's a numbers game. Luck is a numbers game. So if you put yourself in 100 opportunities to connect with dream clients or whatever it is in that situation, you're increasing your luck. So, I mean, I think I've always viewed most things in my life as a numbers game, even when it was dating back in the day, it was like, just it's, it's numbers, just, um, take the emotion out of it and, um, put yourself as in as many great opportunities as possible. I also think the second part of it for me is I used to think that, you know, you should wait till you're chosen and, um, you know, I used to sign up for different contests and competitions where other people were in charge of choosing me for whatever it was. And then at some point, I just realized, and I think it might have been Seth Godin's book, Lynchpin, when I just realized, oh, we don't have to wait to be chosen. We can choose ourselves. And, and when we choose ourselves, really, that's what we're doing. We're creating our own luck rather than waiting for a gatekeeper to say, hey, you qualify. You're in. Or waiting you know, for Oprah to choose you. It's like as copywriters and business owners, we basically are choosing ourselves. And if we don't do it on a daily basis, things start to fall apart. It's not easy to choose ourselves every day, but it's, it's a practice. Yeah,
1: I'm glad you mentioned Lynchpin because that's such a great book. And well, I mean, most of, most of Seth's stuff is great, worth listening to, worth reading.
0: But that was the best, though. I feel like that's his best book, right?
1: I think that's probably true. Yeah, it's definitely the one that had the biggest impact on me. It, and yeah, we should choose ourselves. Like, that's really what it comes down to.
0: Okay, so what else stood out to you as Daniel shared his earlier experience getting into copywriting?
1: So I I thought it was interesting, you know, when Daniel's talking about um, in that early job, you know, paying attention to stats, data, the analytics and, you know, knowing how to make adjustments to marketing based off of what you see. And this is something, you know, we've we've. Talked with Mamoko Price on the cop on the podcast. She's actually you know, presented at um, our in real life or not in real life event. She's talked in the underground a few times, and she talks a lot about this, like the data, the analytics, and how it can make you a better copywriter. But this is something that I think most copywriters don't really get into, or maybe, maybe it's because they don't want to get into it. But I have a sense that a lot of us are kind of afraid of statistics and numbers and you know, maybe maybe we're afraid to find out that what we're doing isn't moving the needle as much as we hope. And, you know, maybe there are other things driving that. What do you think about that and the, the stats that we need to be paying attention to?
0: Yeah, I think it's intimidating to a lot of copywriters, especially more creative copywriters who haven't really spent a lot of time in that space. Um, I'm probably included in that category. So what would you recommend to a copywriter who is intimidated by stats and data and analytics and uh, maybe it's holding them back from moving forward or, or providing better services for their clients.
1: This is a hard thing to learn because, you know, yeah, where do you start? There are definitely courses out there that you can take. Google has a free course about Google Analytics, and that's probably where I would start, uh, you know, listening to what Momo has shared in the underground and, and the videos that are available for the Not real life, not In Real Life event or other places where you can s- start to see, okay, that. That's how that applies to you know what we're doing, but quite honestly, it really comes down to starting to play around with it. You know, as you work with a client, as you you know do a sales page or an email sequence, asking to see the numbers, uh, you know, the before, the after, seeing the kinds of things that you can do to shift that, um, and really starting to pay attention. It, it's a highly valuable skill, but there's not a lot of great places to learn it. It's it's self-taught, and you know the kind of thing that. You, that uh, you really need to experience to get good at what what do you think about that?
0: yeah, I think it's it's baby steps. I think it's just like familiarizing yourself with the numbers by asking for the numbers or asking for access like you said, and then not feeling like you have to figure it all out, but just starting with starting somewhere with one page of copy or with your email sequences to start um starting to notice the stats and making some. Assumptions based off what you're seeing, and I think we don't always have to be right to just start studying and learning and making those assumptions. And over time, um, if we do that enough, that we'll start to have deeper insights because we'll have trends from several projects, so we can make better decisions. But I think a lot of it is just like it's just baby steps. You do not have to be an expert. You do not have to call yourself. data analyst with your clients. Your clients probably know a lot less than you, than all of us. I think that's the key. Is just how can you learn a little bit so that you can offer more value to your clients who are probably so busy they don't have time to dive into that anyway.
1: Yeah, and there's maybe one other way to learn this stuff. And it's an approach that you've talked about in talking about copy and how do you get better at copy? And that is having somebody there who already understands it, almost holding your hand or being a second set of eyes on what you're doing. And so, you know, finding somebody who's really into the analytical side. And just saying, hey, can I run some ideas past you? Or you know, buying an hour of their time to look at the stats, at the analytics, that kind of thing, so that they can start teaching you that sort of thing. If you have a mentor, if you're working for a business where you know those numbers are shared, whether it's a client or where you're working in-house, where those numbers can be shared, uh, that's another way to start to, to learn what's important, what's not, how the changes that you make impact the numbers and that kind of thing.
0: I, I like that idea. All right, let's go back to our interview with Daniel and talk a little bit about the lessons he learned running his agency. What are your top lessons from the last year running your agency? Uh, You know, based off what's worked, what hasn't worked, that could be helpful to another copywriter who's building an agency or wants to build an agency?
2: Good question. I would say before you get onto the, the track of building an agency, I think it's important to be very clear about your vision for this agency. Why do you want an agency in the first place? What is that going to give you? Um, and so growing from that vision of why and, and what you want it to look like makes things a lot easier. And I would say that one of the places where I really struggled was beating my head against the wall trying to figure things out. And it's a big part of the reason that I you know, ended up joining the think tank was because I was trying to figure all this stuff out on my own. And I didn't have a network around me with people who have more experience, you know, things that people to bounce this stuff off of. And so there's a Dan Sullivan book, Ask Who Not How, or it's just called Who Not How. And so asking that question has really helped me, you know, speed things up and get out of my own way um, rather than trying to shoulder the burden. Um, And then, you know, back to bullet point number one from the beginning of our conversation, it's still true. Invest in relationships. I mean, agencies definitely thrive on repeat business from clients and referrals from clients. And so really just trying to take care of the client and do a good job and delight them with the work product and invest in that relationship and be a trusted partner to them, you know, to the degree that one can. Those would be, I think, the biggest things. And I would say, in addition to that, I would say it's better to start simple and stay simple than to start really complex and then try to dial it back because that's where I'm at. And it's a bit of a rejigging of things, but um, but yeah, I think that would be that. Would be that. <laughs>
1: So Daniel, talk a little bit more about that, like getting too complex, you know, because uh, as you started out, I think you had a pretty good why for building an agency and ultimately, you know, came to the decision that what you were building wasn't quite what you wanted to build, you know, so you've, you've backed down, but talk a little bit more about that. How did it get too complex or where were those challenges where you said, okay, enough, I need to simplify and what does that look like today?
2: So I think the, 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 the sort of, The complexity tipping point was around having to serve multiple clients on multiple platforms with multiple different funnel structures, with multiple different types of integrations and having to own that project. And so basically biting off more than I could chew from a technical standpoint and then not turning around and getting help quickly to take that out of my way, off my plate. You know, the the initial idea was to sort of create this all-in-one, all-encompassing sort of service that would take care of a lot of different needs. But, you know, I, I came up on my own limitations from that. And it was just really instructive, honestly.
1: How have you changed it from, from complexity to simplicity? What does that look like today?
2: Yeah, So so in terms of reducing complexity... I redefine my packages. So the packages are just copy. They're not copy plus web design plus implementation plus aftercare. Um, And so the way we hand off work has become a little bit more streamlined. The way we refer people to, you know, other folks who can take care of the, you know, the next steps, you know, that has changed. And the other thing is just offering less stuff, really. Just not having like a hundred different things and not being willing to, be everything to everybody. You know, I I know we talk about niching a lot. And I think that I've kind of niched in two ways. I mainly work with B2B companies now and agencies. Um, So sort of like a pinch hitter for agencies as a copywriter. And then, you know, the clients that I am actively, you know, engaging with are more in the B2B space. So not taking any work that comes my way. uh, That was definitely a mindset shift from when I started, uh, which was holy crap, I can make money writing. I'll take any writing job. Sure, I can write about the inner workings of electrical parts and you know stuff. I don't know, to actually writing about things that make sense and writing from a place of, okay, I actually feel comfortable writing about this stuff.
0: Can you talk about um, best practices as far as working with junior copywriters? I know you've worked with a handful of copywriters at your agency. What are What's worked, what doesn't work? as you've perfected that process.
2: I wouldn't say I've quite perfected it, but I'll tell you what has worked really well overcommunicating expectations and making it easy for people to be successful. So I can unpack that a little bit. Um, you know, it starts with making sure that the writer is actually the right person in the first place. And so the idea of hire slowly, don't jump into a relationship with a writer right away just because you know so-and-so said they were great or they were cheap or whatever. Um, because r- working with another writer is is interesting in that your brains may not work the same way. Your routines may not work the same way. So trying to understand if this person can fit in with how you do things is important, I think, just as much as it is making sure that they can actually write. And then having a way of doing things that's clear and again easy so that the writer feels prepared to do the project so we've created really robust trello boards that house the research that house the recordings of the customer interviews that house brand guidelines that set up checklists for how we do projects you know so process deliverables check marks all those things that you know you would want to make sure that gets done like make sure that they've checked it against the style guide make sure that they've you know processed it through Hemingway Grammarly make sure that it's a certain reading level just all these little things that if you don't ask for it it's not going to get done right but if you do ask for it and you make it easy for them then it's just a, a simple hoop to jump through and so owning that SOP the standard operating procedure I think is really really key um I've experimented without it. And, you know, in the early days, it was just like, put something out there, see what happens, see what you get. Rarely did it work out. But the more clarity that I could give on the front end and then, you know, the better feedback that I could give on the back end, the better the work product in the end. And I think that's also more helpful for the writers too, because then they understand what the expectations are. They understand where the feedback's coming from, what it's about, what it means and how to improve.
1: Daniel as you, you know, leaned into doing an agency for a while and you've kind of, you know, leaning back out, um, not 100% in but also, you know, keeping those resources available. Would you ever build an agency in with different circumstances, you know, a different partner or having gone through that experience are you, are you sort of thinking, mm, I kind of want to do my own thing and not have, you know, a big team around me?
2: I wouldn't be opposed to the idea of building a bigger team at some point. I think that what I've learned is that it starts with really good self-management before you become a good manager of people. And you guys know me and you know I've been working a lot on my self-management lately to improve my approach to my life and my work. And so I think that as I become better at being myself and being, you know, effective in all of my ways and routines that I could again become, you know, an agency an agency owner. Um, I just really burn myself out uh, for a lot of reasons, taking on a lot of work, taking on not the best fit work, not having great personal boundaries with work and, um, you know, just not taking care of my brain the right way.
0: Can you talk more about just uh, self-management practices that are helping you? I mean, you've mentioned like building out these systems within your team, bringing on OBM, simplifying, but for you personally, what is working with self-management and what have you tried that doesn't really work?
2: I'll start with what doesn't work because it'll illustrate what works really well. What doesn't work is having all the apps on my phone at 24 seven, being able to see every piece of communication all throughout the day and throughout the night, Um, having multiple notebooks with client notes in multiple different places does not work. It's easy to drop something if it's not in a centralized place. There's so many things in just the world of organization that don't work. Um, and so in order to solve that, what I've done has basically been to redefine my morning routine, redefine my daily approach to work. Um, Annie Bacher turned me on to the idea of having a startup ritual for your day and a shut down ritual for your day. And so really having those bookended boundaries of time and of action have really helped me to focus on work when I'm at work and then focus on, you know, being with my family when I'm not at work. And so really, I I guess it comes back to boundaries. Um, But in terms of self-management, I've also had to learn how to deal with a lot of pressure, you know, lots of clients, lots of projects, not a lot of free time. So one of the things that I was running into was overwhelm and procrastination. And so I dealt with that poorly for, you know, a couple months and realized that I need to make a change. And so over the past month or so, I've started making these gradual changes. One of the biggest things is common wisdom, the Pomodoro technique. Um, Turns out it's very good for people with an ADHD brain to just take it a little bit at a time, you know, um, back in the day, um, I think I was kind of fueled by anxiety and fueled by adrenaline. So, you know, like procrastinate, procrastinate, study all night, the night before ace the test, then go pass out. That's not a way to live and it's not a way to run a business. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. So like the training for me is I get up every day at the same time. I, do some stretching because I have back pain issues and so when I stretch and when I do my yoga routine I don't have back pain as much um, I do a little bit of meditation in the morning and then I get to work and um, you know I have my startup routine up here on the wall and it reminds me to put my desk in stand-up mode to open up Trello first to um, file meeting uh, file my emails for responses at a certain time so that I'm not just constantly in the ebb and flow of respond, respond, respond. Um, and then at the end of the day, my uh, my Google Home tells me, okay, Daniel, it's 4.30. It's time to wind down. And um, I tidy up my desk. I get rid of the cups and stuff. And, um, and then I, I try to think about one thing that happened today that was good and write it down. So I'm I'm digging that. Are there other things that you've
1: done as you've worked on your mindset over the last few months in addition to, you know, the startup shutdown routines and and how you've been dealing with overwhelm?
2: Yeah. Absolutely. One of the biggest things that I've done, you know, for my mindset is just showing up and being there for other people and sharing in the experience of uncertainty. So, you know, I'm not alone in my uncertainty or my imposter syndrome, you know, basically we all have it, but, you know, engaging with people when they are in a place of uncertainty or doubt or self doubt for me, like just being able to mirror back to them, their excellence reminds me that I too am very capable and um, you know, I have something to offer the world and I'm not just, you know, not good enough or not smart enough or whatever the thing is.
0: Let's talk about um, your mindset growth. I know you and I have talked about this separately and um, how much time you've devoted to working on your mindset over the last however many years. Um, As you've done that, what has worked? So beyond self-management and those best practices and those rituals, what are some practices that actually have made a difference in your mindset growth that could work for other copywriters? A
2: lot of what I've picked up over the past year or so has been from our mutual friend, Linda Perry. And I have this saying up here on my wall uh, and it's the story I'm telling myself is dot, dot, dot. The truth of the matter is X, Y, Z. So, you know, when I come across a situation or a feeling that is, you know, like getting me into a thought loop, you know, I have these visual cues physically in my space that remind me to ask myself questions. Um, that's really the way I hack my brain um, and, and my mindset. Um, and uh, other than that, a couple of the other things that have helped have just been, you know, studying, studying some courses from other people around our approach to work, our relationship to technology. So some of the ideas from like Jocelyn K. Gly, Cal Newport, those things have kind of informed the decisions I make to create boundaries, to create structures, to, and the way I think about my business, because I heard a quote yesterday from Sage Polaris. And she said, you know, I worked so hard to take care of my business for a long time. Now I'm working to make sure my business takes care of me. And that really resonated with me. And I kind of see that that's the path that I'm walking down now. And so from a mindset perspective, I think it's asking the question of how much do I want to grow and how much is enough really? Because I think that our industry sort of fetishizes wealth and, you know, the toxic bro marketing culture with the Lamborghinis and like, you know, the, the tank tops and the sunglasses and all that stuff it is it is one facet of one person's experience of this journey that we're on. And I think for me, it's about being conscious of what I'm taking in and how I'm constructing my expectations of myself. Because if I compare myself to, you know, the the Clayton Make Pieces of the world and, you know, the, the legends who are, you know, driving a yacht on you know, the French Riviera, I'm always going to be in a state of lack. And so mindset wise, I've been trying to do as much as I can, as often as I can to remind myself that I'm not in a state of lack. I'm actually in a state of totally being fine. Abundance, if you will, not to get too woo, but, you know, compared to 99% of the world, most of us have it pretty good.
1: So in addition to mindset, and you've kind of touched on some of these things, but I just want to kind of wrap up this part of our discussion. What else have you done to invest in your business? Uh, you mentioned a couple of courses. You mentioned, obviously, working with Linda a little bit. Are there other things that you've done strategically in order to grow over the last year or two?
2: Yeah, um, I've, I've spent a fair amount of, um, of, in, of resources on, on courses and coaching. And so, yeah, I can talk a little bit about that. The first thing I ever bought, I think, for my business was um, a coaching package from a guy named Ed Gandia, who runs uh, another copywriting coaching group. And I learned a lot from Ed. It's it's really, it was a lot about mindset. It was a lot about, you know, kind of like the stuff you guys teach in the Copywriter Accelerator around structures for your business, positioning, marketing, a lot of the fundamentals that I just didn't really have in place. And so I, it gave me a great primer. It, it definitely helped me move from, you know, making less than 10 K a month and like, you know, between my freelance business and my full-time job gave me the, the hope that I could definitely do that once I, you know, left the corporate world. Um, I got coaching from Craig Ballantyne who was like a productivity guy and, um, Craig, uh, I learned a lot from Craig around self-discipline and I learned a lot from Craig around, around consistency as well. And, um, that was a good, that was a good experience for me. Um, it opened some doors, you know, helped me get some clients. Um, I've worked with Linda. I'm in one of Linda's programs right now. And, um, you know, I've been a member of the copywriter underground, uh, since like 2019 ish. And, and now the Think Tank.
0: Because you mentioned the Think Tank, let's talk oh, just a little bit about um, what your experience has been like in the Think Tank, maybe even just like what surprised you or what's come out of it for you, because I know it's it's different, a little bit different for everybody that's been a part of our Think Tank. What does that look like for you?
2: What to say about the Think Tank? There's a, It's a very rich experience, so it's hard to like distill it down. There's a lot going on in there, but I would say the number one thing is just the, the support of of both you and Rob. You guys are great mentors. And like having access to you has definitely helped me up level in so many ways um, and avoid a lot of things that could have happened had I not done things more intelligently. Um, I love the community aspect of it. I've made some great friends in here. Uh, You know, I I know these are people that I could send an email to and they would probably get back to me within a few hours. Like, you know, if if we were in person, they'd meet me for coffee, you know, if I was having a bad day. And so like the mutual support is amazing. Um, the, The sheer amount of expertise in the room is pretty incredible. You know, there's a real big diversity of talent in there. Different types of copywriters who have different types of experiences who all sort of you know, between the, what, 20, 30 of us in there, like some, there's somebody in the room who has experienced what I'm having a question about. And if they haven't, they know who has the answer. So like the idea of getting stuck or getting lost is pretty low if I'm willing to reach out. And, um, you know, the retreats and the workshops and stuff have been really valuable. I mean, y'all have brought in some pretty great folks, um, and I've always got pages and pages of notes, and I'm always iterating things based on all the pearls and gems that get tossed.
1: Nice. So, uh, Daniel, I want to shift the conversation and ask about your podcast. You recently launched a podcast. Uh, tell us a little bit about like, why you decided to do a podcast, uh, a little bit of what it's about, what you, know, what you cover with your guests, and, uh, and where that's going.
2: Yeah. So in January, I launched a podcast called Ritual, and it's about creative routines and practices. It's it's really, really blossomed into just really open, great conversations with other people in the artistic community and the copywriting community. My vision for this was to talk to all sorts of creatives, and I've been able to do that. Um, and the reason that I started the podcast was just out of a sense of wanting to create some content, for the sake of visibility, but I didn't want to do exactly what other copywriters are doing. You know, there's, you guys have the market cornered on copywriter interviews, right? Like, and, you know, Linda has the, the, uh, the mindset first podcast. So there's all these folks out there who have, you know, their different flavors and they're all very good at what they do. So I was careful to not replicate, you know, just, Another iteration of what somebody else was doing, and I wanted to have a conversation about what does it look like to be a creative person on a day to day basis. What is your ritual? What are your routines? And then also talk about what they do, and you know what they're cooking up, and their businesses and stuff. But really, more I guess more on the deep emotional level and the the personal.
0: What has surprised you the most about? Launching a podcast and hosting a podcast and getting into that space, is there anything that has been surprising in a good or bad way?
2: Surprising in a good way is that I love when people tell me like third hand that they heard something somebody else said and then it helped them out or that they got something out of it. Surprising in not so great a way, podcasting is kind of like laundry. There's always more to do. You're never quite caught up. There's always more to do. I I admire people like Jordan Gill who can do like batches and like do it on like, like eight days a year. Um, I'm not that put together. So I don't know that that could work for me. I also think I'd probably lose my voice after, after, you know, three interviews. I can barely get through a two hour session with my copywriting students um, every Wednesday. I just like, wow, that's a lot of talking, but, um, but I love it because Audio is a way that I feel comfortable showing up and I can define the way that I'm visible to the world around me. I don't have to be on Instagram video every day talking about my breakfast or, you know, posting long form blog posts on authority sites. Not that I'm against any of that stuff. It's just like finding what works with me and my personality, my temperament, my energy. I like talking.
1: Obviously, Daniel, your business has gone through a lot of changes over the last couple of years. I'm curious
2: where you're going next. Excellent question. I am currently developing a new business with a friend from the think tank, Anna Parker. We are launching something called Artist Inclusive, and we are creating a community for artists, specifically performing artists, who are trying to get out of that cycle of like working in restaurants or, you know, other low paying jobs and like trying to make it between theater gigs or musical gigs, you know, isn't there a better way to go about living life as an artist? And certainly, you know, nobody should have to live the trope of the starving artist. And so, you know, Anna and I, when we met, we realized we had this common story. Right. like She came out of the theater world and acting and found copywriting. And I, you know, came out of the musical world and, you know, the fiction world and kind of made my way into copywriting. And so we we really thought, what could we what would it have been like if 20 years ago someone had showed up and given me the keys to the kingdom? Like, here's how you could provide for yourself never have to work for a trash boss again, like make enough money to get by and have plenty of time left over to to be artistic, creative, and to push your art forward. And maybe, you know, there's just a little glimmer of hope that we create this community and we help people actualize their big artistic dreams and create sustainable businesses for their lives.
0: Can you just talk about... Um... What has worked with this partnership? I know it's still, you know, it's still the early days. You're putting this together, you're launching soon, but, you know, what has helped make it click and work to the even to the point where you both believe this partnership has legs and this could be something? Um, What advice would you give for other people who are talking to partners or looking for a partner?
2: I would say that really, it matters that you find somebody who is aligned with you on a values level. If, if the person that you're working with has a completely different motive than you and wants to go into business for a different reason, then I don't think it's going to work out probably as great as it could. If, you know, you find somebody and you have that realization that, okay, you're my people, like we get each other. And that doesn't mean that, you know, she and I are Anything alike, really, I mean, we're very different. She's Icelandic. I am from you know Red Clay, redneck Georgia. Um, but you know the the commonality is is that you know we're we're entering this partnership from a place of wanting to be of service to others and naturally being led to teach and help. Um, and the way that we've kind of gotten on the same page. Um, is just a lot of communication. I mean, we don't live in the same city. We've been in lockdown. So we, we meet every week. We talk about what we want this thing to look like. You know, we've, we've gotten coaching from you and Rob. We have, you know, talked to, we've gone out and done some, you know, market research and like talked to people and to ask if this is something that people actually want to be a part of, that they need. Um, so really just laying a lot of groundwork and laying some foundations in terms of systems and processes as well. So, you know, the the cool thing is, is like we're able to basically duplicate a lot of the workflows that I've created and get on the same page through like using Trello and using, you know, we'll be using the same podcast producer when we launch our podcast for Artists Inclusive in June. And so all these things have kind of like helped us get on the same page more quickly. Um, and just being willing to, you know, Ask those questions. You know, you guys had us do an exercise around what do you guys like, what do you guys not like, you know, understanding which one of us is going to be doing what type of of execution. And we're still figuring it out.
0: Let's recap a couple more things before we wrap up this episode. So in this part of the conversation with Daniel, what stood out the most to me was the simplicity. Just How important it is to keep the business and your packages as simple as possible, keep your processes as simple as possible, your offers so you're not trying to be, especially if you're in the micro agency space, if you're not, you're not trying to be, you know, deliver all the things and um, solve every problem for your client. And that's something that we've seen firsthand with Daniel as he's built his agency, how it's It's been really hard at times because he was trying to do everything for multiple clients. And so it's been really great to see firsthand how he's simplified over time and really kind of seeing the power of that and how it can make it so much easier and more enjoyable to be a business owner if you keep it simple.
1: Yeah, that's advice that you and I have received from one of our mentors. You know, making sure that we're building a business that's easy to run, that has, you know, very simple systems, that you're not stretching or that we're not stretching ourselves too thin across a ton of different things that we're doing. And I think that advice applies to every kind of business. You know, if you can, uh, survive or even have a thriving business offering one product and it's a product you enjoy doing then you know that oftentimes can be much better than having four or five products you know if you only do vip days which we've seen a lot of copywriters are starting to experiment with doing only you know one day engagements or you only do sales pages or you only work in a particular industry by simplifying different things you can just make those parts of your business that much easier to run. And it really is, it's an experiment. You know, Daniel is treating his business like, hey, let's let's try this agency thing. Let's see what's working, what's not working. And then you pull back on the stuff that doesn't work. And, uh, you know, let's, let's try this simplicity thing and let's see what's working and what's not working. And, uh, you know, it's something that you and I have repeated often, but by treating different things in your business as experiments, you learn what works and what doesn't work. And you can lean into the stuff that does work and really... Enjoy the business that you're building.
0: Yeah, and, and Daniel has done a great job of that as he's figured it out along the way, along the past year too, which is crazy to think about. You know, he really just took off with his agency last year and March 2020 when we saw him in San Diego, and then he's just grown so much since then. And so I think Daniel is a great example of someone who continues to question everything along the way and um, iterate and update and improve. So. You know, so he's not stuck in a business that doesn't work for him.
1: Yeah. Now, you know, he talked about how he pulled back from his business and or from his agency model in his business. And I know you've kind of done something similar. You haven't necessarily said no to agency, but you've changed the way that you've approached your business too. You know, what are some of the lessons that you saw, you know, as you're running kind of a micro agency, like what Daniel was doing and, you know, what, what do you need to know to make that kind of a thing work?
0: Yeah, well, I always called my micro agency. I always called it a flex microagency to myself. Like nobody else cares, but because in my mind I did, it was more agile and I could, because I didn't have a set team of writers and I didn't have anyone, you know, any employees, I felt like I did have more flexibility so I could expand for a month and take on more projects and then shrink down the next month. And I really liked that, um, especially because at the same time, we were building the copywriter club. So there were some times where I did need to shrink down my copywriting uh, micro-agency so that I could focus more on the copywriter club. So I think for me, it's just knowing what works best for you. And for me, it's flexibility. Also, it's um, having a project manager. I had a wonderful project manager, Janice, who helped me manage those projects. So I think if you are interested in testing more of a micro-agency model, finding that person is really important. Um, because if you're project managing and copy chiefing and selling and marketing and the list goes on and on, you're going to get burnt out, burnt out. So that person's key. And then I think also again, with my model where I didn't have a set number of writers, I um, it was important for me to at least have a larger pool of writers I knew I could reach out to who, um, you know, if I asked two people if they were interested in a project, I knew most likely like one of them would be interested because Because I trusted them already, because we had a good relationship, um, because I tried to pay them as well as I could, and so I could find people very quickly. So having that pool of writers you can really depend on who have talent and trust and deliver on time is also key if you want to do more of a flexible agency
1: yeah that seems like the hardest part for me uh, maybe it's my approach to writing and whatever but I, I always feel like when people are writing for me there's there's this thing where I need to rewrite just a little bit or you know put it into my voice and I think you know starting with uh, the approach to an agency and working with other copywriters you've got to be very comfortable in letting other people run with their voice with their approach otherwise you're just doing all the work anyway. So, you know, figuring out how to work with other copywriters seems like a huge part of the challenge to developing some kind of an agency.
0: Yeah. And if you have a larger community, I mean, that's why you and I are so much about community, because if you are part of a larger community of copywriters, it's easier to find those people. It's easier to find other copywriters who have a similar voice that matches Rob's voice or matches my voice. And so, Um, that's where having those connections is so important. If if you want to go down that agency route, if you don't, you you may not need those connections as much.
1: Yeah, agreed. So is there anything else that stood out to you from uh, this half of the podcast?
0: Well, I think, you know, Daniel's podcast, um, which has been about rituals, um, really speaks to what he, what has been important to him over the last year, over when he's learned how to manage himself. And I like that he shared, you know, really the importance of like managing yourself. You need to be solid, at least good at managing yourself, before you can expect to be good or great at managing others. And I think that's so true. Oftentimes we jump into managing a team, and we're really not that great at managing ourselves. And so we know how important that is as um, small business owners and freelancers in order to figure that out. Because if we don't, we it's just so hard to grow. So I love that he shared his startup rituals, what he does at the beginning of the day, what he does at the end of the day, so that he has these bookends on the day. And that's, to me, so important because it is easy, especially when we work from home, to just kind of like feel like we're always working, to never turn off, to check email or Slack you know, late into the evening. And I've done that so frequently. And so I think having those bookends is, is, is really helpful. And I'm trying to do more of that, too.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you picked up on that. I was reading this morning something about the difference between habits and rituals. Habits become automatic so that, you know, they're the things that we don't even think about doing. They just, you know, it becomes habitual, whereas rituals are conscious and we need to like be present. We need to make sure that we're actually doing them. We're paying attention. And uh, I, I like the contrast, like our days need both habits and rituals, and I love you know, the idea, especially of a shutdown ritual, it's something that I need to incorporate into my life so that you're really, you've, you're putting a bookend on the end of your day and saying, okay, work is done. Now I can do, you know, creative time or, or time with my, my spouse or partner or hang out with the kids or go read or walk or exercise or do any of those other things that aren't part of work. I think that's a really critical um, thing to do. And, and I'm glad that Daniel shared that idea.
0: Yeah. And it was a simple, he shared the example of just clearing his desk, right? And taking some of the the plates for the cups off his desk. And that resonated with me too. Cause I, my desk, I don't, I feel like your desk doesn't get really messy during the day.
1: Oh yeah, it does. I, I have, yeah, it drives me crazy how many stacks of things I have on my desk.
0: Okay, I would like to see a picture of that. Um, <laughs> because Mine gets really dirty and really messy too. But that's what I do at the end too, is like it, it all needs to be cleared away, right? Anything food related, drink related needs to be cleared away. And so I think something as simple as that could just be your, I'm shutting down now I'm clearing everything out. We're done for the day. And so such a simple example, but, um, I don't know that that stood out to me.
1: Yeah. I think that's something that uh, Cal Newport talks about in uh, deep work, uh, his book and having, you know, start up and shut down rituals at the, at the end of the day. Again, I think it's just a really good idea. and something I'm going to work on incorporating into my, into my days.
0: And Daniel touched on this at the very end, but, um, He's talked about how how the importance of how you view yourself, and um, so you're not in a state of lack, and you're not comparing yourself to others. Um, and he he mentioned you know comparing himself to Clayton Makepeace. So what did what did you take away from that idea that he was talking about?
1: Yeah, I think it's really easy to have that comparisonitis kind of a thing going on where you know we see other people the things that they have or the things that they're really good at and saying to ourselves, you know, I'll never be there. I'll never be able to do that. Those kinds of clients, I, I'll never be able to get them. And I, I just don't think that that's a healthy approach, uh, you know. So I, I do think that we need to be okay with where we are at in our path and and growing at the pace that, you know, we need to grow. Sometimes that happens quickly. Sometimes it happens slowly. And just enjoying the journey of it all, I think is is really important.
0: Yeah, I like that.
1: So thanks to Daniel Lamb for joining us to talk about his business and the new venture that he's launching for creatives. If you want to connect with Daniel or join Daniel and Anna in Artists Inclusive, you'll find more information on his website, hollandcreative.io. That's hollandcreative.io or in the Artist Inclusive Facebook group if you want to check them out there.
0: That's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. Our intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please, please, please visit Apple Podcasts to leave a review of the show. And don't forget to visit copywriterthinktank.com to find out more about our business and life changing mastermind. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
2: Copywriters coming together
1: to help the world write better copy and make more money Kira and Raps Copywriters club yeah.